Hey guys, this is Emmett. I am in the middle of traveling right now, which messed up my recording schedule with John. So, instead of our normal exhaust episode, what you're going to get is a guest appearance I did on the Ryan Research Podcast run by Peter Ryan himself. He had me on to talk about all sorts of things. We get into nuclear, we get into why nothing feels possible. We get into some of my background, and the latter half is a really interesting discussion about American identity, his ideas on Irishism, what he calls Irishism, and all sorts of stuff. But the first half is what you'll listen to here. It's a two-hour talk. So if you want to get the rest, it will be coming out on his YouTube channel, the link for which is in the show notes. Sorry for the delay in our regularly scheduled programming. We will be back next week and this weekend with a discussion of the next couple chapters of Kosalik's Futures Past. John and I are rip-roaring and ready to go with some of that. So thanks so much for listening. Hope you guys enjoy it. Welcome to the Ryan Research Podcast. I'm Peter Ryan. I'm joined by Emmett Penny to talk all things uh, energy, nuclear, and I think we'll cover some Irish topics as well. Yeah. Like, uh, Emmett, can you please introduce yourself? Yeah. Okay. So I'm Emmett Penny. Thank you so much for having me. This is this is really exciting. Let's see. I am. Well, I run two podcasts. One is called Nuclear Barbarians. If you're watching this on YouTube, that's my background. And one's called Exhaust. Um, and exhaust is about why nothing feels possible. So I've got sort of the energy podcast and then the cultural podcast. And then I am the editor in chief of a new energy newsletter, which is about to go daily starting next month called Grid Brief, where we try to give people the best highlights from the energy sector and provide a little bit of commentary so they can view that stuff in context. So that's what I'm all about. I mean, there's a longer story about how I got here. I don't know if you want to get into that, but it's your podcast. You let me know. Yeah, yeah. I think I think we're free to roam a little bit. You seem like we're after some, you know, answers to questions and we'll, we'll see where we head. So yeah, I think your whole brand is nuclear barbarians. I'd be interested to know like why, you know, obviously I get sort of the nuclear part, but like why is the barbarians? Uh, <laughs> yeah, totally. You know, I think part of it was that for a while I worked for Michael Schellenberger over at Environmental Progress, and I helped him with both of his books, Apocalypse Never in San Francisco. And one of the things that I realized there is that she won't even stand up for itself in America. It's pretty cowed. I mean, having a nuclear plant is sort of like having a car, right? Where it's good to have it in case you need it, but you can also sell it if you need to. And so that's nice too. And if you need to scrap it for parts, that's also all right. So it's also become something of a decommissioning industry. And when I was thinking about what I wanted to do after I stopped working for Michael, he and I had a lot of talks about it. And one of the things that I wanted to sort of bring into the nuclear space was to, through some sort of branding highlight, like how outside the cathedral you feel as somebody who wants and is trying to get nuclear built in America. You know, it's hard to capture like just how big the forces against it are. And this thing started to happen as well on Twitter, whereas if you were like, oh, I'm really into nuclear or whatever, you'd be like, oh, you're just a nuke bro. And I was like, okay, I remember this from when I was like a Bernie guy. And I was like, I know how this goes. And you can never, never weasel your way out of being a Bernie bro once somebody's like called you that. So I was like, I just need to lean into it. And, you know, like I'm into like powerlifting and arm wrestling and all this stuff and like heavy metal. So I was like, 
I'm just gonna like bring all of that into the nuclear space. Like whatever that attitude is, I don't see it anywhere. Everything else is very like highly polished with flat design stuff or whatever, which I'm not knocking. It's just not what I uh, wanted to bring. And so that's sort of why I went with that is there seemed to be a famine of like Promethean might and respect for those types of like big civic achievements. And I wanted to bring some of that in there too. So that was sort of the vision that I went with. Interesting. Yeah, you don't really hear the word Promethean often in sort of energy infrastructure discussions. So I like that's that's where your mindset is coming from. And so then talking about the origin of why you came into energy and everything, I, I took a listen to, you know, I went through your podcast and you mentioned that you were a Bernie bro and I found it cool how you describe your journey from that space and sort of looking for answers, feeling sort of sort of disjointed about like what was happening and there were sort of missed signals. And then you were at this pipeline camp in the desert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was a super interesting story. So if you want to give that as like your yeah. Promethean origin. Totally. I started to have my, like probably the first questions about energy way before I met Michael Schellenberger, way before I started reading people like Lee Phillips way before, like when Exhaust, that podcast launched, like it launched during COVID. So we were like doing deep dives into like supply chain problems and like why we couldn't build anything anymore. And like deep histories of like just in time production and stuff like that. Like that's where we were really looking at in that podcast at the beginning. And so before I had any of those questions, I was in grad school out in Santa Fe and there was this dude, Jay, and Jay was a vet who had had a really rough time in special forces and came back really radicalized from that experience. And he and I linked up because I was like a real heavy lefty at the time at St. John's College in Santa Fe. I had a feeling. I, I just, I don't know why. I had a feeling it was St. John's. And a very unique vibe they got. <laughs> it's true. And around that time standing rock was happening and then and he was going up like every weekend you know he was taking his car bringing gear you know whatever and then he came back standing rock was over and our spring break was coming up and he was like there's another pipeline thing an indigenous camp out near marfa texas do you want to go for a week and i had just i was just starting to get published at the time like very small pieces and i was like well i'll go and maybe i'll report on it and I went out there and within like day one, I was like, I can't report on this because I don't know how to have any distance on it. And like, I'm not just going to cheerlead because I also, I was starting to realize that I really didn't understand the issue. And I was like, some of the people there had like rap sheets and I didn't want to like <laughs> accidentally like snitch on somebody, <laughs> you know, like make their lives worse, you know, because something happened where somebody ended up lockboxed to a bulldozer near the Trans-Pecos pipeline. And I was there to see them lockbox there. And I was like, there's already legal stuff happening and I want distance from that. But I remember there was this moment where I was talking to a guy there, we were having cigarettes and <sighs> some dude had come out of nowhere with a car full of stuff. You know, it was awesome. It was so kind of it. It was like supplies, it was meat, it was all this. And as we're like loading it into our like freezer and all of that, this guy looks out at the horizon and he's like, you know, if only people knew they could live like this, the world would be such a better place. I remember just thinking, like I started like doing the math in my head. So I was like, okay, so like this guy brought us the supplies we're loading in through Facebook, which is like this international heavy infrastructure fiber optic like project, you know, uses a lot of energy, probably uses a lot of fossil fuel, which is the thing we're protesting here, this Trans-Pecos pipeline. I was like, and the guy drove here in a car that runs on gas. And then all of these things were kept that he got us in supermarkets that also need a lot of energy. And I started to like walk it back and I was like, wait, live like how? Like, because all of this rests on this modern world that we're protesting. 
And that's when I really knew I wasn't going to write the piece because that was like a level of tension and inner conflict. Like I couldn't really deal with, you know, at the time it just said like, I remember like my stomach getting like really sour after that, because I was like, I don't know what we're doing out here, you know, but I wanted to be like down for the cause. Like I met people from tribes from all over North America who've been brutally treated by their governments, either the Canadian or the U S you know, and I wanted to be in solidarity with them. But at the same time, what was happening out there, first of all, it was a foregone conclusion that pipeline was going to get built. But whatever the vision was beyond having this small protest camp with its teepee set up and stuff like that, I was like, there's nothing that happens after this. Like, already the problem as, is so much bigger than whatever this is that this can't address it. And that asymmetry alone is giving me big, big questions about how the world is actually materially structured that I didn't have the answers to. So that's what happened to me out there. Like that's when I really started to ask questions. So you're asking questions, you're in this moment of, there's probably more a philosophical term for it, but you know, you're, you're basically in a way free. Like you, you had sort of a, an existing paradigm you were living in mm-hmm. that something happened that enabled you to actually say like, okay, I'm questioning and I'm looking at the places and I'm actually free to find alternative theories to these problems. So then where do you go next? Yeah. So I wasn't quite ready to embrace that freedom. Um, you, you know, felt the, you felt I, the- but I, I just felt really uncomfortable, yeah. but I, I also didn't know what the off ramps were. You know, I had been radicalized, not in grad school, but before that. I was working dead end jobs in Northern Florida for like minimum wage. Like that's what radicalized me. It's like doing that after college and like having friends who'd like been in prison and like seeing what their, their lives were like and like hanging out with people like that at Whataburger at 3 Mm a.m. You know? So I was like, what's the alternative? Like the idea that there was going to be alternative to the way left and socialist politics were being handed to me seemed like so beyond the pale at that time because I had so internalized it as the solutions to what I saw my problems as when I was really like living near the poverty line in Florida Mm -hmm. that it took a lot like years of dislodging right because whatever the left is now it's mostly a debate society it's not really like a political generous Yeah. Well, I say that because there is a, and you know, I've worked for NGOs. There is a feedback loop that happens there and it can be impediments to certain things. So it's really good at creating obstacles to politics, not the best at having an actionable politics in and of itself, especially post-Bernie. Like that's just kind of over now, you know, but anyway, like what happens is I'm still like, I'm basically like a Chapo head at this point. You know, and I write sort of something in the vernacular of the dirtbag left thing. And it's an article I'm still proud of. It's called Lecture Porn, the Vulgar Art of Liberal Narcissism. Mm -hmm. And it comes out in Paste Magazine. And I get a DM on Twitter from this guy with a pretty big account named Michael Schellenberger. And he's like, what are you up to right now? And I was like, like right now, right now, or like generally? He's like, like within 15 minutes. And I was so broke at the time, my phone had just shattered and I didn't have any money to replace it. So I gave him the number for the bookstore I worked at in Santa Fe and went to the back and pretended to take an order. And he asked me, he was like, what are you interested in? And I would give this long philosophical answer about like the need for political agonism and all of these things. And he just said, yeah, I'm not interested. He's like, what do you think about nuclear energy? I was like, I don't know, it's bad. That was the first thing I said to him. He was like, okay, well, you seem like a smart guy. He's like, I can tell you're on the left. He's like, why don't you read this guy, Lee Phillips book? The book is called Austerity, Ecology, and the Collapse Born Addicts. Um, he's like, why don't you check that out? And then uh, fly out. He's like, I'll pay for your flight out to Berkeley and come hang out at my think tank for a week and just see what's up. And like, maybe we'll do some work together. And I was like, okay. So I read Lee's book, which came out on zero books. And it was like my first introduction to like a Promethean perspective from left or whatever we want to call it, 
where the answer being supplied wasn't we need to restrict human consumption. We need to curtail the development of society in order to fit in with the like biological patterns of the earth or whatever. It was like, there are practical industrial things we can do to improve the human condition on this planet and we can do them. And yes, climate change is real, but the answer to whatever that is, is not austerity. You know, nuclear, obviously, because it's so energy dense and it's clean, features heavily in Lee's vision of the future. And that book had a huge impact on me. And then I went to the DSA convention in Chicago in like 2017, I want to say. I was a delegate. And I remember going to the eco-socialist meeting and everybody there was just like, we need to get rid of nuclear and build solar and wind. (laughs) Just no dissent, like that's what was up. And I didn't have the chops to be like, but what about this other thing? Because I was like so overwhelmed by how like not a debate it was that I was like, this is weird. And I remember I actually reached out to Lee Phillips at the time because I had like messaged him being like, hey, I liked your book. And I was just like, dude, I just had this crazy experience at the like fucking national convention. Like what's going on? And he was like, oh yeah, expect way more of that. And then I immediately flew to Berkeley, slept on a friend's couch and had these very patient engineers and like statisticians like walk me through like just the brass tacks of what actually decarbonizes a little bit of how energy systems work. And I was like, wow, I'm convinced like nuclear is sort of it. And then I didn't work for Michael. (laughs) I went back to my bookstore job. None of that happened. I didn't link up with him until a couple of years later under surprising circumstances for us both. And I ended up helping him with his books, like I said, but that's when I really started to dislodge is when I was like, okay, there's like a specific thing I can point to that's wrong here. Mm -hmm. And like everyone's advocating for the incorrect thing. Not everyone that's not being generous, but most people are, and that's a big problem. And then it was really over the course of like watching the second Bernie run, reading people like Michael Lind, listening to, actually listening to perspectives outside of my own bubble. Mm -hmm. Because like when you get interested in stuff like energy, you stop being super partisan because there are so many people of so many different ideological persuasions that already exist in the industry. And they're also doing something practical. So they're like, this has to keep going. (laughs) You know, like these are necessary goods for society. We have a vested interest in maintaining what these are, whether it's gas plants, nuke plants, whatever. And and that's what really started to like open my mind to, you know, like what has happened with modernity? Like, was the industrial revolution real? Or is that just shorthand for something that actually took place over? decades and centuries, not years and decades, you know, questions like that. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's fascinating going through that whole arc that you had to get to this point. So yeah, so where do you think this animus against nuclear on the left comes from largely? Because it's sort of, there's sort of an obvious reaction of Fukushima, Chernobyl, catastrophe stuff associated, but I mean, any inspection of what those disasters were and then what sort of the like holistic picture of global nuclear looks like, I mean, it's, it's much safer than sort of those reactions would, would make you think. So why do you think the left has mm-hmm. that antagonism? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I've actually thought about it a lot. I have a piece coming out in American Affairs this summer that actually goes into some of the set length. So I'm glad you asked, because it's gonna be one of my first time sort of giving a new answer to this question. And the first thing I'm going to say is that I don't think it's entirely the left's fault and that I have learned how mismanaged the nuclear industry has been in this country. So to give them, to take a little bit of the burden off them, I want to talk about like the managerial managerial hubris of the Atomic Energy Commission and the big investor owned utilities in the post-war era. So, you know, we get civilian nuclear outside, out from the Manhattan Project. And already when the Atomic Energy Commission gets formed, it's a conflict of interest. You can't really promote and regulate something at the same time. And that's exactly what their charter was. So a big problem there. And you 
it also sort of inherited a lot of government secrecy. It didn't, a lot of the early chairmen didn't, even if they were new dealers like David Lilienthal, didn't really feel the need to like make things clear to the public. Like when the Atomic Energy Act got passed, most senators didn't even know what it was. You know, so why does this one become big sauna, a, right? what one big sauna? Yeah, it's one big sauna, man. It's one big sauna. You know, what's that thing? I can't stand Ed Markey, but he always says nuclear is an expensive way to boil water. Yes, yeah. <laughs> you know, but so shipping port is our first like real plant that works. There's one that melts down and. 55, the AEC covers that up, does not tell the public. Of course, it leaks, that damages the reputation. And then a few years into the 50s, the Bikini Island moment happens. And Louis Strauss, the guy who infamously ate his own words when he said, nuclear energy will give us electricity that's too cheap to meter, basically said, yeah, not a big deal. The radiation isn't harmful. Basically just shut up and don't worry about it. Like, why are you bothering me with this question? A bunch of geneticists were like, that's just not true, man. And rightly, they fought their way onto the AEC and adopted this thing called linear no threshold. Linear no threshold is created by this guy, Herman Muller, who was a eugenicist socialist. And his idea about radiation exposure was that any amount for any duration at any like volume was potentially dangerous. And the guy, and then and the AEC just adopted that as a standard. Now, why is that a problem? Well, A, that's a highly sensitive metric and doesn't really make a lot of sense. Mueller also, he won the Nobel Prize for that and suppressed scientists who he knew of that had actually debunked his findings. Now, this is where it gets really, really frustrating. And I start to lose my temper a little bit because these guys were basically so arrogant that they were like, you know, we'll never, it's a one in a billion chance we're ever going to have a real accident. So like, who cares what you use to measure it? Who cares? We're so great. That's never going to happen. So you fast forward to 1979, 12 days after the movie, the China syndrome comes out, which is about a horrific nuclear meltdown. It's like sort of impossible to have happen the way they outline it in the film, starring Jane Fonda, an anti-nuclear environmentalist. And 12 days after that, we have a big industrial accident at Three Mile Island. Now, no one gets hurt, but we have to remember that the Atomic Energy Commission, which becomes the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, adopted the most sensitive way to think about radiation exposure while saying it's a one in a billion chance that anything's going to go wrong. And this happens in the midst of an energy crisis where utilities in a bandwagon effect build a bunch of nuclear were driving up people's utility bills for plants that were never coming online. So it is like the perfect storm for public resentment to happen. Now, the left, the environmental movement, as it comes to be, this is in the moment where the left is starting to decouple from the labor movement in America. Most unions are patriotic. Most unions are like insanely anti-communist at that point. A couple of red scares have really brutalized the left. And the revelations about the realities of Stalinism had also done serious damage to it. Now, through the anti-war movement, you have all of these young people and a lot of them college kids coming into left ideas, but they don't have the same allegiance to labor anymore. And they don't wanna to have to figure out how to convince their conservative father in the suburbs that communism's really for him. You know, so you can't really blame them in some ways, right? Like that seems like a difficult task. Like if, you're like, I'm a Marxist, so my core constituency is the we're in like industrial working class in America. And all those guys like hate me, you know, and don't want to listen to anything I say and are antagonistic to me. That puts you in a problem. So they start looking for ready-made revolutionaries. And that spawns movements that do have like good, like I don't want to poo-poo what comes out of all of these movements, right? Whether it's gay liberation or what have you, but they're not socialist labor movements. And that's an important distinction to make. One of those sort of like causes that creates the new social movements is environmental 
environmentalism. But environmentalism is basically a eugenics movement. And people forget this because climate change has really allowed them to sort of whitewash that element of their past. They haven't had to like atone for Margaret Sanger the way Planned Parenthood has, you know? But there are guys like Paul Ehrlich who are drafting off of late 40s eugenicist writers who in 68 writes the population bomb to create the comprehensive environmental vision that he sees as absent from the anti-DDT movement that is birthed by Rachel Carson's 1962 book, uh, Silent Spring. Now, that vision has a logic that goes like this. It's similar to climate change. Like if the human population keeps going up, we're going to run out of resources and it will be apocalyptic. The only way to make sure that that doesn't happen is to enforce energy austerity because that will curtail industrial development and force down population levels. And that will stop environmental degradation. So that is the post-war vision of this. I found this great quote from this lefty journalist at the time who was looking back on this moment in the 80s. And he was basically like, I cannot believe that one of the most powerful anti-war movements this country has ever seen turned around after like, you know, scaring the hell out of LBJ and all of this stuff. And was like, people are pollution, <laughs> you know, like that is staggering to see happen. And part of that's because of that delinking from labor and the left, you know, because now it's environmentalists fighting labor unions to get the Indian point plant built, because what they're scared of is they're scared of the abundance of energy that nuclear supplies. We have to remember that, you know, the government and big utilities weren't obviously the favorites of radicals who wanted to take on the man, especially if they were young. So that's an important element here too. You know, some of it's Oedipal, Bill Ayers of the Weather Underground. I think his father helped build the nuclear industry in Illinois. No, it's, <laughs> it's a, so there's always there's like that, a, right? There's a connection there. There's, there's something going on. There's history rhyming. Yeah, exactly. So. So that's how the left ends up adopting this posture of we don't like nuclear energy. There's also a big conflation of civilian nuclear with nuclear weapons. And a lot of that comes out of the matriculation of the anti-war movement into the environmental movement is that conflation and it works to their advantage. So all of these people like Amory Lovins, who's like the really the first guy to be like, we're going to do all renewables, like that's something we can do. Actually, it's kind of like we can do coal and renewables, but that's another story. He's waiting in the wings with a very popular and infamous piece he writes called Energy Strategy, The Road Not Taken in the mid-70s. And there are all of these people who are even the heads of the TVA or whatever that do a pivot in the 70s away from energy abundance towards energy conservation and austerity. And so it's not just the left. There is actually sort of a unanimous like about face, about the growth ideology, which was self-consciously peddled by CEOs at, you know, General Electric, Ford, you know, General Motors, and the major utilities, because it served them well to make sure you bought all sorts of electric appliances, because then your demand went up and they could build another big power plant and drive down the price of electricity and secure their guaranteed profits as a regulated monopoly. And that worked for a while, like from, I think the early fifties to the late sixties or something like that, demand for electricity grew at a rate of 7% a year. I mean, that's amazing. You know, so no wonder why you were just like, I can't wait for nuclear to come back on. You know, part of it's also that Westinghouse and GE got overburdened and they just could not build the compressor parts fast enough to get those plants out on time because it was a new technology. So anyway, that's where the left ended up on the wrong side of nuclear. And that's exactly the moment when these NGOs start to balloon and become a major problem. They're, I think they're just generally a problem for American politics. I read in the most recent, I think, issue of Jacobin, they had this two pages of just graphs on how much that sector of the economy has taken in. And charitable organizations, tax-exempt charitable organizations in America 
have something like four over four nearing five trillion dollars in assets, which is 25% of our GDP. I mean, that's crazy, you know? Yeah. So there's a lot of these people that come up in these no, new social movements in the new left that then end up in institutions and positions of power, you know? And, and so that's, that's where we are, right? They, they go from fighting to man to becoming the man. And this is the moment we're in, you know? And a lot of the stuff that happens in the seventies was just like, that became gospel for a while about energy conservation. One of the few people that really, really pushed back on it publicly was Dick Cheney. He hated that ideology. He was like, that's stupid. <laughs> He's like, that's not how you make an economy grow. He was like, that's not a powerful energy independent America. He was like, that's all that Jimmy Carter bullshit and I don't want to hear it. Yeah, yeah. There's, um, I, th- I believe there's, there's a scene in, in Vice, the, the recent biopic about Jay mm-hmm. that came out where it's the time period where he's in government and Reagan just got in power and they're, they're like having this montage of them taking the solar panels off the White House. Yeah, 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 yeah. I forgot about that scene. Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, you have to remember like guys like Jerry Brown too, totally adopted this despite the fact that his family had deep ties to the oil industry. Yeah. You know, so like it's, well, there's, a, there's an NGO, I believe, the Friends of Earth Society. Oh, yeah. Their, I mean, their foundation is like an oil tycoon, like created this thing. Yeah. I uh, mean, yeah. E.F. Schumacher, who wrote Small is Beautiful, was a coal consultant. Amory Levins consulted for the coal industry for a long time. And I think even did work in like ONG area up until the early 2000s. You know, so this is, we're at the level of institutional path dependency now, is what I'm trying to say. At a deep, like, cultural and policy level, that's how we've ended up here. Yeah, so, you know, basically we have this confluence of leftists coming around this nucleus of ideology that basically human beings are parasitic. Mm -hmm. There needs to be mitigations on how much humanity sort of takes out of the earth and hauls it out. And so we have to implement energy austerity. And then, you know, ever since that period of the seventies into the eighties, nineties, two thousands, we've had different variations of it. Obviously like now it, like everything green and leftist is about climate change and Mm -hmm. threats that are coming from that and and the narratives that get get woven into uh, this agenda. What I find interesting as well is as you described this, disconnection between the leftist movement and labor and it's like the leftists and their father who works probably in the plant or the factory what you also have as as the other imaginary friend of leftists which is like there's the labor you know proletariat mm-hmm. and then there's the developing world archetype and what i find interesting about the developing world is i mean there is no patience for this type of talk for the developed yeah. world to talk down to them and say oh no 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 you know how we develop, we have air conditioning and refrigerators and all this stuff. You guys can't do that. So like, where, where do you stand on sort of this dichotomy between the developing oh. world is all about as much energy as much as possible and they're not stopping for anyone. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe this is just, you know, as we might get into the Irish stuff, as you said, you know, I'm yeah. named after an Irish revolutionary and my family was ah. like Irish Republicans, pretty hardcore. And so when I see people talking about like formerly colonized countries mm-hmm. that way, I really reach my hackles up. I mean, first of all, just the audacity and condescension to say that to people who were brutalized for the benefit of those who live in the developed world is just, I, it's one of those like, have you no shame moments. I know that that doesn't really work. It's something to say to people, but it still inspires that reaction to me. And look, like they need, I'm an energy maximalist. They have a right to develop and the developed world can either continue to be an impediment to their prosperity or it can figure out how to collaborate to enhance it. And those are the two roads. And I'm very much on the enhanced road. I don't think coal's going anywhere for a really long time because the developing world needs to develop. But I do think there's huge opportunity to figure out how to build a bunch of nuclear, mm-hmm. you know, and to, how to do those types of deals, et cetera, et cetera. Like 
I'm not a big, like, I don't know tons about foreign relations. I could just say like on a, on a first principles level, I am against trying to enforce the renewables only vision on the developed world because you cannot leapfrog developmentally. You cannot just say, we're gonna go from high entropy energy, right? Inconsistent grid, all of that stuff to a greener, insanely high entropy energy, which is the sun and the wind because it's intermittent and I'm gonna develop. That's just not gonna happen. And if you try to force people to do that, what you're doing is you are forcing them into poverty. And that's why it's really disturbing to me that the solution for climate change for climate change is actually for these people, a zombie like eugenicist idea of keeping people in poverty. Like that's the real darkness there. I don't think everybody in the green movement like thinks that way, by the way, especially not the young kids that are coming in that are really worried about climate. Yeah. It's just like the tools right at hand. They're like, oh yeah, wind and solar. Cause no one's telling them any different, you know? Although I, I will say, like, I think like there's levels, like it's a multi-level marketing scam. For, sure. Yeah. For, yeah. Yeah. There are some true believers, right? Like, well, well, I, I'll say, I would say more so cynicism. I would, I would yeah. say that, I mean, there's, there are definitely ideologies that are put into the world in order to sell an imperial vision and that, that is a veiled imperial vision. And so when I see people at the highest places of society in the developed world and they're articulating mm -hmm. Um, these types of policies for the develop, uh, developing world, when I start to look at that, I say there's something else going on here. They're, what they're really trying to do is keep these countries dependent and weak. And it's, and it's the same common thread that runs through other narratives yep. uh, that you could talk about with the IMF, with mm -hmm. foreign finance, with you know, free trade import dependencies, all these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's where you start looking at some of these energy discussions, you say, is this really about you know, saving the earth and all these sorts of things? Or is this about making sure other places around the world stay within their peripheral status and dependent on the core and the core can keep extracting from them? No, and I think a great place we can look for that is South Africa right now. For the longest time, Germany was saying, you know, South Africa, you don't really need those coal plants or that one nuclear plant you have. What you do need is a lot of the wind that we have built. You need a lot of German wind turbines. Don't you want to join the green movement? And now, where are we? Germany is like, how much coal can you sell us? I will give you all of our firstborn children so that we can keep our lights on this winter for that. What, how much coal do you have? You know, And that's where we are because that's sort of the, the delusion of the all renewables movement worked like so many things when everybody thought that natural gas was going to stay cheap forever. I don't know a time where that has ever been true for the oil and gas world. It tends to be cyclical. And now everybody's got to pay the piper. You know, so I feel bad for workaday Germans who are just trying to get through their lives. I have zero pity for their leaders. Yeah. I have zero pity. I'm like, hey, you got yourself into this mess. You know, you listen to, guess who consulted on the energy vendor? Amory Lovins. Okay. <laughs> like I was talking about earlier. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's part of his vision. So they got yeah. exactly what they asked for, you know? And that's exactly why I can't, I won't put up with that nonsense. That you're right, is about subjugating, keeping the developed world and continued subjugation through energy needs. And that's exactly what all of that ESG stuff is out there it's exactly what all of that ngo stuff is you know with energy it's all bullshit you know they're like no you don't need like liquid natural gas containers or you don't need propane tanks or whatever just burn wood it's more organic and natural it's like that's the most carbon intensive thing you could do oh yeah burn wood. That, that is that is crazy to talk yeah about biomass and it's like that's that's true biomass is like such a huge con <laughs> yeah i mean that i was actually one of the most revelatory moments that i came to understanding the environment better mm -hmm. more through a green lens was i came became aware of ozzy zayner you know through his documentary plants of humans and then i read his book green illusions and i started to dig into his perspective and one of his main critiques is that there is a 
serious issue when it comes to like setting up wind or setting up solar is that these things are like great marketing at, at the front end. And then they probably don't work at the tail end and they collapse, there's maintenance problems. And what ends up happening to fulfill the promises of renewable biomass becomes sort of this like last ditch thing to make mm -hmm. sure that percentage wise, you're like sustaining that. But what ends up happening, you're just clearing forest after forest to just burn. And it's like, it's, it's insane that suddenly the green movement is about burning forests. I think there's also just a lot of, from my experience, and also as somebody who is, I had all of the received wisdom of the green stuff, yeah. you know, before I started looking at energy. So I can say that there's just not a lot of engineering discipline. Mm -hmm. Our schools aren't really good at teaching energy. You know, so there, there's a lot of that too. I talk about this all the time. I say, you know, my mom, her father, eighth grade education, worked on the GM line, worked his way up to management, supported a wife and four kids on one salary, owned a home. And my mom grew up in Detroit. And what was their science unit in eighth grade? It was the internal combustion engine. Because if you live in Detroit, the motor city, you need to know how an engine works. Yeah. You know, there's a sort of, we've lost that as we've lost manufacturing as well. I think that's also part of why it's very easy to have all this Fugazi paper stuff happening because nobody really does anything real. I don't want to say that like no one does anything real. We've got great people in the energy sector. There are manufacturing jobs in this country. We should be proud of them. I think we should expand them. And I don't want to say that every single financial thing is bullshit because I think that would just be frankly ignorant, but I'm hardly alone in saying there seems to be a lot of like con jobs happening and not a lot of real jobs happening. Yeah. Well, I'll say it for you. I came up in the cryptocurrency space. So it's like all, all the finance jobs. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. Well, you would know better than me, right? Like I've had to, I've had to learn how to, and I think this was ultimately good for me and I still have a lot of lessons to learn here. Yeah. But because I can't, I've come into the energy world as such a newbie without, you know, with a humanities background, not a science one or anything like that. I've, I've, I'm now a little bit more humble before I'm willing to call everything bullshit until I know. Yeah, I, mean, you know? I, I think that the critical distinction is you mentioned like industrial and manufacturing a few times, mm -hmm. keywords. And I think that's this sort of common thread when we think more about, you know, you're really focused on energy and it's mm -hmm. a huge component. But we get into really reevaluating all of economics and so mm -hmm. much of like mainstream economics, neoclassical, neoliberal, whatever we want to call it, is about, you know, esoteric math equations and, mm -hmm. and sort of living up in this abstract space of factor price equalization and understanding sort of how you arbitrage the best and mm -hmm. all, all this stuff. Whereas the more I've kind of dove into better understanding economics, the more I see that it's much more of this system design and almost more like ecosystem design mm -hmm. where it's like there's all these facets you need to understand as an economist to make an economy run and so like mm -hmm. one is monetary policy how does money work how does all mm -hmm. that flow through like blood how mm -hmm. does then industrialization factor into that so it's like why does manufacturing create more value in a society than you know service-based stuff or just mm -hmm. sort of raw material extraction and agriculture mm -hmm. and then Obviously, the corollary of industrialization is you need a lot of energy to power those yeah. machines. And so it's like to be a successful economist in the truest sense of the word, you need to understand money industrialization and in a really deep way to get all parts of the system to, to come into place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I think, I think, I mean, that's an easy slam dunk for me. Like that's right by my wheelhouse. So it's like, yeah, I, I agree. As somebody who's not an economist, I think they should know more about that. And I think it's a, I think it's a, I was talking to somebody today, earlier today who, not because of me, but in part because of some of my work, got interested in energy and now they pursue it a lot. And he was saying, you know, it's, it's totally getting, learning about energy. He said, has totally changed my life because you can't unsee it. Yeah. You know, it's like you look at, you look at fertilizer, it, like natural gas goes really high and you're like, oh no, crude's going to go high too, because you need it to process yeah. crude. <laughs> and then you're like, oh no, we're going to like, they're going to be serious. Then there are serious ramifications for ammonia and therefore fertilizers, you know? So you're going to have what I've been calling the black cascade, you know, 
cascading problems through each sector that arise from these big energy disruptions. And if COVID taught me anything, the major moment where I was like, oh, we're through the looking glass here was when Larry Summers was like, how come we can't make masks? And I was like, great question, Lair. Yeah. Now, <laughs> I, wonder, I, I wonder why, man. <laughs> yeah, and it's, and it's this deindustrialization of the West, of America. It's, mm-hmm. it's understanding where things are made now. And, and, and again, like, like where are the masks made? I mean, not every mask that I got over the pandemic was made in China. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what's interesting going back to this like developing world dialectic is that whatever we want to say about climate change, everything in the West is basically irrelevant. Everything we do to diminish carbon mm-hmm. and, and focus on these renewables yeah. and solar, it makes no lick of difference unless China, India, Pakistan, so forth and so forth, these big de- developing industrializing countries that are just gonna increase their, their production and consumption, unless they join the bandwagon. And after the last sort of round of climate discussions with them, I mean, they've said we're not, I mean, we'll, we'll revisit this in 2070, I think was the. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just wrote a thing on the resurgence of coal for this morning's newsletter. I was working on it yesterday and China was like, yeah, we're going to keep our coal plants running. What are you crazy? Yeah. Like, what are you high? They have one grid that services their entire country. I mean, first of all, their grid balancers are gods. That's amazing. You know, huge respect for that responsibility. It's a serious duty to run a piece of structure like that. But it's the it's the basic like free rider problem. You know, where it's like if we decarbonize, then there's more avenues for them to expand <laughs> their emissions. You know, and I think that's where nuclear is really important here, both as an economic and diplomatic engine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because if America wants to get into the business of churning out reactors, and I think it should for all sorts of reasons be, that go beyond climate, but if it wants to on the world stage to have a big impact on climate change, well, then it has to compete with Russia and China. Right now, Russia is the best at doing it. Rosatom is the best nuclear manufacturer in the world, bar none. Mm-hmm. They deliver on time, like basically under budget, and they build all over. Mm-hmm. Something like 80%. I mean, who knows how it is now? I haven't looked into Rosatom post-Ukraine <laughs> and, and how it's going for them. But for a while, they were doing like 80% of orders mm-hmm. over the globe for new nuclear or something like that. Just insane numbers, you know? So we have to get in on that. We're leaving money on the table by not. And I do think that like, if we think the a multipolar world is here, then I don't think that we can assume that there's just this American largesse that's just going to work in all cases. And I think our allies would perhaps have a right to be a little more demanding of us, especially if they're in a developing world situation, because there's not just one top dog anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So nuclear could be a really mutually beneficial scenario for the world we're entering into. Not only that, it's really great for energy security. You know, I mean, we could just get, I mean, we could do domestic uranium production. We could pull from Canada. We could set up a trade agreement with them. So that's great. We could finally get rid of all the stupid stuff that Carter and Clinton did to stop us from building fast breeder reactors and refire our fuel in those if we could get around to building them. And the other thing is, is in America, I don't think you're allowed to do digital displays in any nuclear plant. So it's all still knobs and buttons, which means it's air gapped from all of the cybersecurity issues that we're worried about in this like incipient gray war with China and perhaps Russia. Yeah. You know, and look, like I don't have anything against the people of Russia or even like Putin or Xi, like I, I don't see the world like that, but I do see that there are just like basic realities of tensions between these countries. And this is probably how it's gonna shake out. I'm not a hawk. I'm not an interventionist by any means, you know, but I think that as somebody who doesn't have a lot of power, that's what I'm seeing the world enter into. And this is a case I could make for nuclear being really good. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a realist strategic national security, you know, policy. It's like, you know, be defensive. It's like, it's better to, you know, control your own energy than to not and to be yeah. on global supply change and yeah. pickle allies or even, you know, potential enemies. And what's interesting about that is 
you know, so much of where the world was coming through industrialization in the 19th century and then into the 20th century, it was all like people were very well aware of like sort of you need independence with energy. Like Mm -hmm. uh, I studied the Irish experience a lot. And one of the revolutionaries, like critical things that we'd write about is like this idea of like, hey, yeah, we could be politically independent from Britain, but we're importing their coal. Like, so that's like a huge dependency issue. And so Mm -hmm. like, they don't like what we're doing. They can shut that off. So, so much of what the Irish at that time were thinking about, how do we get off English coal? And so there was a number of, you know, catalysts and and programs to sort of get this started. And and they, lo and behold, they settled on hydroelectric power is going to be the solution. And Mm -hmm. in the 30s, they finished this plant. It was the most advanced hydroelectric plant in the world at the time until the Hoover Dam was finished. And it supplied for like, you know, two decades, three decades, around 95% of Irish energy needs uh, until demand outstripped the supply of that one plant. So it was an amazing achievement and it was, it was fundamentally premised on this idea of we need to get off English coal because it's a security threat. And mm-hmm. once we have our own energy independence, then we can do a lot more. And so, and also like I mentioned, like you have these three legs of the stool, you have money, you have industrialization, you have energy, how to be, how to run an economy. How do you, how do you make a hydroelectric plant? You need the yeah. government to like stimulate that and make sure mm-hmm. like there's money to, to make that happen. And so even though the government at the time in Ireland was a little bit like closer to fiscal conservatism, mm-hmm. somehow they like made this project gel with that ideology mm-hmm. and they spent the money. It was about a fifth of the, the fiscal budget and they put it together. It was an amazing yeah. achievement. Yeah. I mean, that's an amazing story. You know, I think I love that story. It's the Shannon electric electrification project. I think um, yes. I can't remember the exact name, but I thought, I think that's it. Yeah. That's an amazing story. I mean, many stories like that in the early 20th century, the rural electrification processes that America undergoes during the New Deal is a huge part of that. You know, Samuel Insull, who was sort of the head honcho of the investor-owned regulated monopoly utility, was always trying to figure out how to get into the rural sphere, but demand just could not take him there. You know, it really took FDR showing up and being like, we're going to do this. And also, I might add, a lot of senators who grew up poor and on farms and saw what it did to their mothers and their sisters and didn't want them to grow up like that, didn't want their children to grow up like that, didn't want the people that they knew and loved in their communities to whom they were accountable to grow up like that. So I think that that's part of it too. I mean, look, when you're super wealthy, like the US, you have a wide margin for error. Is you, so you, something can be going wrong and create big problems for you down the line. And it'll take a long time for you to notice. And I think that's where we are now, um, especially with the current administration with energy policy. You know, I thank God every day now for the shale fracking revolution. Mm-hmm. I mean, how lucky are we that that happened, you know, to give us some energy independence. But we need to start having like a real come to Jesus moment about the importance of energy and in industry. Because it's clear that America is very sophisticated in the financial sphere and great good for us you know i don't think we should poo poo that because that's important but like you said that's not everything you know so we're gonna have to take a hard second look at some really gnarly path dependencies we've set up for our energy and electricity markets i mean the whole like electricity spot market experiment that's happening, been happening in California, Texas, New England, parts of the Midwest is I think at this point, like the market design has such fundamental problems where it values volatility so much that it is creating physical problems for the basic operations of an electricity grid. There's no such thing as a strong country with a weak grid. Exactly. It's just a fact. So that's going to have to get fixed. I mean, I'm seeing people starting to do some serious thinking on that now, and it's going to take a while for us to unwind some of this stuff or to figure out how to fix it or to come up with, you know, whatever weird public private stuff. Cause you know, America's always doing that weird, like Hamilton and Jefferson, 
you know, debate with itself about how it's going to do, yeah, how it's going to do whatever we're going to do, you know, but that's, that's what I think is coming for us. You know, I mean, look at the sort of the canary in the coal mine of Texas over the winter where they had that huge blackout and yeah, um, yeah, I mean, there was a whole variety of reasons of, you know, why did this happen to Texas? You know, had the right saying, because of all the dumb windmills that didn't actually work. And you had the left saying, no, it wasn't exactly that. There were other problems. And I think you can have a mix of them. I, I think the obvious thing was that I think you could point to was just like, what you're sort of getting at, there's this carelessness that we take with energy. And it's what happened with, I think, most acutely with the energy grid in Texas was like, they did not plan for the black swan, like winter storm. Mm-hmm. And so like all their pipes were not properly insulated. And like, that was one of the main contributors mm-hmm. to these things blowing up. Yeah, I th- so that's right. We'll say this, like, yes, I, there were definitely problems with the insulation of gas pipelines. Part of that, if people really want to get into this, they should check out Meredith Angwin's book, Shorting the Grid, which goes deep into the current problems the American grid is facing. It's a fascinating book, changed my life. I love Meredith. She's great. Go find it. She just did an interview on Bloomberg's Odd Lots podcast. So I guess people can go check that out if they want to hear what she has to say about the grid and nuclear. But so part of it was that. Part of it was that we had 60 something billion dollars in wind turbines be basically useless right at the moment where you need them. And uh, the other component of it is just poor market design because no one's really responsible for the grid. That's a big problem. That's a big problem. You know, the regulated monopoly utility, you know, I've, I've, I've hard on them. They made mistakes, but they tried to be as reliable as possible because it was in their interest. And there's a lot I can forgive provided they'll actually do that. You know, do I understand where people who live in say Louisiana are coming from when they're like, yeah, you know, dealing with like energy or whoever sucks out here because they just throw their weight around and like, don't help us when another hurricane comes through. I'm like, yeah, that's frustrating. That sucks. It's hard to figure out how to hold a giant like that accountable. I understand. So there are trade-offs and things that we need to look at that haven't gone away while we've inherited a bunch of new problems. So that's where we think we, I think we are with that. And If we want to, let's take Texas again. If we want to like reshore some stuff and build more stuff within America, Samsung puts in a semicon wafer fab in Texas, right? They lose hundreds of millions during Gary, like 300 million, just catastrophic losses, really. You don't want to experience that. Who the hell is going to keep placing industry in Texas if its grid isn't reliable? Who's going to be able to make any money with that? What are you just going to tuck away half a billion in case the lights go out? Like, that's not a business plan. Come on. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody's going to do that. They're going to look somewhere else where the labor costs are lower <laughs> and the power is cheaper and more reliable. You know, no, I'm not saying we should drive down people's wages, but I'm saying, like, if you can't offer them the cheap, reliable power, you know, and whatever else, they're going to go somewhere else. And American companies are going to move somewhere else. And I don't think we're going to see a day in my lifetime where America is just like, we've nationalized all of this. I don't even know if it would run it well if it was nationalized. But so we have to think about like, what's in it for American manufacturers? Why should they stay here? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like there should be like a deal struck where like, you know, these big manufacturers have sort of a consortium where they mm-hmm. like help plan like these grids on maybe like a state by state basis or something to the degree of like, you need long term horizon here to yeah. see like what's going on and make everyone's interest align that, hey, the collective interest in the grid working properly is in your direct interest in manufacturing properly. So like, let's all get on the same terms of investment and, you know, they're like management worked out of however that works. But yeah, there's just, I mean, a, a lot of, a lot of the blame can be put at the feet of like, we did go through this neoliberal phase of privatization. You know, there was a slew of private actors that came into the energy market. Mm-hmm. And while the logic was that this should improve it, it didn't. And I believe Robert Bryce who was on your podcast, yeah. made sort of the nice phraseology of it where, you know, these things aren't commodities. They're not hot dogs. They are critical mm-hmm. infrastructure. 
Yeah. 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 I think that's, I think that's true. I mean, I love Robert. He's, he's become a dear friend and I've learned a lot from him just to keep plugging people. I like his podcast. Power hungry is also really good. You should check out his movie. It's free on YouTube. It's called the juice, how electricity explains the world It is uh, very worth watching, but yeah, he and I have also started calling it the Enronification of <laughs> the energy world because he wrote the first book on Enron and he was there when it was sort of falling apart. He watched that happen while he was working on the book, I believe. And so much of like Enron served a real need where they could create or tried to create an actual like spot market for natural gas. That's really important because if you're going to do something risky, like natural gas, you kind of needed to know like maybe what type of money you were going to make later so that you could at least have like balance your books. And I mean, they were also complete crooks. And as Robert likes to say, Ken Lay was a PhD in economics who couldn't read a cash flow sheet. You know, all sorts of things went wrong. And where am I going with this? What I'm pointing out is that there seems to be this idea that, and I this is the theme that keeps coming up as we're talking, that you can just do the, do the market and then everything else will flow. But I think we're receiving, we're at the beginning of a really rough education that starts with COVID about how that's really not the case. Yeah, that is, that is not, I mean, I mean, I mean, we're seeing it in a, in a very real way, not with the Russian and Ukraine crisis of gas prices going up. And, I mean, the Europeans are going to have to deal with actual, like, like the Germans, like, like core electricity prices going up and austerity, like super austerity, like, I don't know what's going to happen in the short term with that, in, in the medium, long term. It's just, I mean, it's, we're back, like everyone keeps saying, we've returned to history, Fukuyama, you know, proven wrong. Yeah, yeah. But like, it, I mean, we're, it does really feel like, yeah, we have to start caring about the core realities of life again. Like we can't keep living in like narrative world. Like there's mm-hmm. food, energy, sanitation, you know, these are the things that actually matter in society. No, I think they are. And how we get there is one of the things that I'm really interested in, because I think that's going to be very hard fought. I think part of the reason that's going to be difficult is be frankly, because of social media, not to be like one of those guys, you know, I use it all the time, but I think it's clear that it does create basic solidarity problems in society, just in like a mild way. Like the problem with all of the Trump coverage about like, oh, these crazy right-wingers. And I've talked with default friend who runs a really great Substack on this. And she always points out, she says, look, everyone got radicalized. It wasn't just the incipient right. Because everybody just became Tumblr-brained and weird and like not straightforward in their appreciation of the world. And that's a really difficult problem that I think we have that I have no idea how to fix. To be complete, absolute humility. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, like, considering, like, we're having the chat on this podcast. Yeah, you see what I mean? <laughs> in this Twitter, you know, I, th- I think there's a way, you know, there's a singularity of, of getting Tumblr brain and, like, coming out the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, but, because, like, everyone's, like, post now. Everyone everyone was one thing, now they're, like, post, post. Now they're, like, another. I mean, that's just also people entering their 30s, if, we're, if I'm going to be honest. Like, there are a lot of people, from, I don't know how old you are, but uh, there's a lot of people that were, like, in my age cohort. They're, like, oh, I'm post this now. I'm, like, no, you're 34, man. That's what happened. You know, <laughs> like, you're 34 and you don't want to live in a shithole apartment and work retail anymore or service. Like, that's what happened. Yeah, I did, a, I did a podcast, the two podcasts ago, and the title was Post MMT. So <laughs> like MMT, there's a New York Times article like three weeks ago that was written about how MMT is taking a victory lap, like it's finally reached its peak. <laughs> that would be great to like, you know, okay, we're, we're over that. Now. We're over it now. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the new school, man. No, I think, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity coming up, but it will be opportunity that's created out of intense pain. And that's unfortunate, but the sooner we embrace and accept that that is, I think, at least the medium term for us, the more clear-eyed America can be about what it's going to do next. Because I think we're about to enter into another stage of the American Republic. What is difficult right now is that it's motivating ideology doesn't seem to be waiting in the wings the way it seems to have been before. 
which doesn't mean that it's always been rescued and safe and perfect all throughout because there are people there. What I mean is we might see even more turmoil. I don't know what that will look like, but it's this is the beginning of it being pretty uncomfortable within the flat 50. Yeah, yeah. And um, and maybe this is a good time to like maybe do a hard pivot into like sort of this other topic I wanted to cover with please, like, yeah. Irishism. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and emphasis on like that unique word Irishism as like so like you know it's it's my personal opinion like I agree there's there's this moment of pain that's coming in America I personally think that you know America's an empire I think it's probably been an empire longer than most you know critics of it even suggest it's been I think it goes all the way back to the founding and I think the sort of collapsing mm-hmm. ideological structures in America that are going to cascade over the next 21st century are going to enable sort of new new identities and, and new ways of formulating like what is American and like, mm-hmm. is there is there a fragmentation of America? Is there a balkanization? Do people think differently about, you know, sort of the more di- diasporic relations that they have? And so that's where I now arrive at this ideology of Irishism or mm-hmm. you know, we could phrase it other ways, but I look at myself as an Irish American. I grew up on the East Coast. I have family that you know, has been in Irish communities in the East Coast for a long time. Obviously, in the past hundred years, all my ancestors came from Ireland. And I have a deep connection with the story, the history, the, the realities of what it means to be Irish. And, mm-hmm. and so that's where I come into this perspective of, you know, in, in this modern world, and we have ideological structures collapsing, and we have to rethink our identities as we're, you know, traveling state to state, country to country, and we're like very all over the place. You know, why am I not allowed to be Irish? So I'd like to then turn it to you as a fellow Irish American and one that has an in-depth perspective about the struggle, as you mentioned. What do you think about 